no one in our family will ever forget the new year that we were cleaning up Christmas decorations and dad almost burned the house down. It was deep into January. We had left the decorations up a little bit longer than usual, even in our household where my lovely bride, Julie, loves her some Christmas. You may have heard her say before, it's never too early or too much when it comes, for, comes to decorating for Christmas. She also believes that on the back end of things, that you just don't want to take those decorations down until, you know, Valentine's, St. Patrick's Day, something like that. Well... This particular year, we had left them up a little bit longer than usual, and we were just about through cleaning everything up one night. It was deep into January. It was a cold, cold winter night. The decorations were stacked in the boxes, ready to go back in storage. The Christmas tree had been taken downstairs. It was in the back of my truck. I was going to take it to the tree disposal site in the morning. When Julie turned to look at me, and she goes, I don't know what to do with the garland on the mantle. And she pulled the garland off and kind of folded it up in her arms. She goes, what do I do with this? And I thought to myself, I go, well, man, we could maybe put it in the fire pit outside. But it was late, and it was too, the kids were getting ready to go to bed, too late to start a fire outside. And it was about that time that she handed me the garland, and I sat there looking at it and thinking about it. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw the fireplace. And there was, there was a fire that we'd had going all night, you know, listening to Christmas carols and cleaning up the decorations. And there was still a little bit of fire in the fireplace. And I said, I got it. We'll just throw this barely live garland into the fire. And without even thinking, I just threw the barely live garland into the fire. And as I threw the barely live garland into the fire... Some of it kind of unspooled and, and draped across the living room floor. And when that bundle of dried cedar limbs hit the fireplace, boom, a fireball of biblical proportion shot up our chimney. But not only did that fireball shoot up the chimney, the drape part that had come into the living room caught fire like a fuse that had been lit in gasoline. And there was fire in our living room. I saw my children and their mother looking on with shock and awe, and I realized a house fire was a very real possibility to say nothing of the marital trauma that would follow. <laughs> and so I immediately just reacted and started kicking the barely live garland on fire in the living room back into the fireplace. I grabbed a fireplace tool, pushed it back into the fire, and because it was so dry, boom, it burned up. And the whole thing was over almost as quickly as it had started. Now, how many, how many of you are, are husbands or dads in the house? Can I just see a show of hands? If you're online, you raise your hand too. Men, you know you have a dilemma at this point. You can acknowledge that you were as afraid as everyone else in the house, or you can just go, I meant to do that. I chose the latter. Emily and Joseph were like, that was so cool. That's how young they were. Julie looked at me and she said, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but I learned something that night. I learned an immutable, irrefutable spiritual law that night. What you feed the fire 
matters as much as that you feed the fire. What you feed the fire matters as much as that you feed the fire, particularly when it comes to spiritual issues. As followers of Christ, it's imperative, it is mandatory that we feed the fire of our faith. If our faith is going to grow, if it's going to flourish, if it's going to, to deepen and develop, then it's imperative that we feed the fire of our faith. But what we feed the fire of our faith matters every single bit as much as that we feed the fire of our faith. What I mean by that is that our faith has to be fueled all the time. It's not something that you can just kind of feed one time and walk away from it and everything's cool. It is something that requires constant attention, constant feeding and monitoring. And, and it's a perfect subject for us as we continue this series that we've been in for the last few weeks, grace. When you think about the grace of God, it's imperative that we understand how grace factors into the fire of our faith. Now, if you, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, or maybe this is your first time to check us out online, let me just very quickly review where we've been over the last few weeks to kind of bring us up to speed. And if you haven't caught or if you've missed any of the last few messages, I want to really encourage you to go and watch them online. This is a series that builds on where we've been so far. But the first thing that we found is that grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. Remember, we had a long list in that sermon of all of the things in life, all of the things in our culture that grace changes. We saw, second of all, that grace sets us free, that grace is the great liberator, the great emancipator of humanity, that grace sets us free from sin, it sets us free from shame. It sets us free from legalism and perfectionism. And then last week as we continued this series, we saw that grace tells the truth. Grace doesn't just mean, oh, everything's hunky-dory. Don't worry about your mistakes or your sins. No, no, no. Grace, as God defines grace, as he's given it to us biblically, grace tells the truth. The truth of the matter according to grace, according to God is that all have sinned and fall short. We miss the mark of the glory of God, of the moral perfection of God. But this conversation about grace raises a question that's kind of been lurking just beneath the surface. Remember we said that, that Jesus was the embodiment. He perfectly melds grace and truth, and, and that most people tend one way or the other. There are some people who kind of lean and drift a little towards the grace side of things more than truth, but there are also some people who lean and drift a little more towards the things of truth. And the people of truth, as opposed to the people of grace, it's, it's not that you're devoid of either one of them. It's just that your personality kind of tends toward one of them. The folks in the truth camp over the last few weeks have kind of been, that you've, I know where you've been because I am one of you as a general rule. I know that people of truth are kind of being like, yeah, I understand grace and forgiveness, but man, come on, you, you got to give me, give, me, give me some meat. I mean, you got you to kind of like, and, and listen, that's where we are. But I want you to understand the power of grace. 
power of grace means that grace is the very fuel that our faith breathes. Grace is the thing that powers our faith. Grace is that thing. Grace, yes, it, it changes everything. Yes, it sets us free. Yes, it tells the truth. But this question that has been just below the surface is this. Does that mean that grace is just kind of a, a get-out-of-jail-free card? That, that, that grace means you can do whatever you want to do, and you can go to confession, or, or you can admit you were wrong and claim the grace card and then just move on and do it again? Nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans addresses this very kind of Loch Nessian question that lurks underneath the surfaces of our faith. Look in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verses 14, I'm going to read verses 14 through 16, and then skip down to 22. But in Romans 6, Paul actually addresses this same question, this, this get-out-of-jail-free concept about grace. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, now sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. You live under the freedom of God's grace. Now, if you just took that one verse, man, you, you could take that and run with it, couldn't you? you could, I mean, that, that could become a license to sin. Like, it's all under grace. I can do whatever. This is awesome. Your, your wife says, you know, you, you've been a little preoccupied and a little, a little self-absorbed lately. You could look at her and go, whoa, whoa, hey, I'm just living under grace, baby. I'm just, I'm just living under grace. I'm sorry you're bound by the law. But that's not what Paul is saying. Look at what he says in verse 15 and 16. He says, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. In some translations, it says, may it never be. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Skip down to verse 22. But... Now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. Here's what Paul's saying here. He goes, grace doesn't give us the permission to sin. Grace is the premise and the power of our faithfulness. God's grace is the premise and the power of our faithfulness. He's saying here that grace feeds the fire of faithfulness. If you really understand grace, if you really understand that it is this, that this amazing gift of God, that it is the, the unmerited, unearnable favor of a holy, perfect God that is extravagantly poured out on a decidedly unholy, imperfect person just because he chooses to give it to us. 
When you understand how powerful that grace really is, when you understand that it cost God the life of his only son, Jesus, then you have the premise, you have the, the motivation to be faithful. Then you actually have the power to be faithful, to, to obey God and do what he has called us to do, to stay away from that which he has forbidden for our own good and his glory. And all of a sudden, grace, grace becomes the premise. It becomes the power of faithfulness, of being able to stand firm in our faith. And we, we come back to that grace over and over and over again. Whenever we feel weak, whenever we feel tempted, I, I want to ask you a question, and this may sound like it's rhetorical, but I promise it's not. How many of us in the last week were tempted to sin in an area that is somewhat familiar to us? Can I just see a show of hands? If you were tempted this week to sin in an area that is familiar to you, let's keep our hands up for just a second, okay? Some of you are like, oh, I, want, I barely want to put it up the first time. Just keep it up. Grace. Grace. Those of you not raising your hands, man, that is awesome. Congratulations. But anywho. <laughs> when we are tempted, when we feel that pull of sin in our lives, that pull to rebel against God's sovereignty, against his authority, against his love. Come back to grace. Come, come back and, and remember what it is that he's done for you. Come back and go, okay, wait a minute. Because how many of you know, let, you don't have to raise your hands on this, but I think we all know sometimes sin is fun. Short term. Sometimes sin is fun. I'm just going to leave that right there for right now. The point is, it is a lie. Sin is always a lie. It always promises more than it delivers. But when we come back to grace, when grace is the fuel that we feed the fire of our faith, the grace of God always, always stands as the premise, the foundation, the motivation for faithfulness to obey God. I love when Paul says here, you are a slave to God. That, that's a powerful phrase. And for some people, they're, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I've heard people say before, I would rather serve in hell than reign in heaven. I've heard people say that before. That they, they don't want to they don't want to submit to the authority and the power of God. And I believe me, I understand that natural resistance, but I, I think anybody who resists submitting to God's authority misunderstands authority, the authority of God. The authority of God, God's sovereignty, his power, is always good. It is always good. It is always for our good. God is the only authority who can never abuse his authority. He's the only authority who can never abuse his authority. When we come back to this idea that, that grace is the premise 
of our faithfulness. What that means is that our faithfulness is the result of God's grace, not the cause. Our faithfulness, your faithfulness and mine, it is the result of God's grace. It's not the cause. You can't earn God's grace. So you, you, you can't do enough good things to make God give you his grace. It's what Paul was saying in Romans. You, you, could, you could try to keep every single letter of the law of Moses. You'll never get there. No one has ever kept every letter of the law. Grace, and only the grace of God, is the premise for our faithfulness. We, we come back to the grace of God which he initiated, he offered, and we're reminded that's why we obey. I don't obey so that God gives me the grace. God gave me the grace so I obey. My faithfulness is fueled by his grace. Look at what Jesus said in John 14. John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus said, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. All who love me will do what I say. We will follow his commands if we love him. This, this is the love language of God obedience, to take what God has said biblically and to say, I will bring my life under the authority of Scripture, believing that Scripture is God's supernaturally transmitted word. It is God's word. It doesn't just contain the word of God. It doesn't have some nice sayings that we want our kids to learn. This is the word of God, and so I will bring my life into submission under this word. But I do that not out of obligation, not begrudging, like, but because of grace, because I remember what God has given to me. And it's in this grace that I find my motivation for faithfulness, for, for obedience. This is what God calls us to. So it's the premise of our faithfulness but it's also the power of our faithfulness. Let me, let me ask you a question. How many of us sometimes know the right thing to do, but we're just tired? Does anybody get tired spiritually? Have you ever, let me, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been like at odds with another person? Let's, let's say a spouse. Let, let's say maybe at work. And you know you know the right thing to do is to take the high road and not lash out. You've been there, right? But sometimes, sometimes, I have just decided in the moment, I'm tired of the high road. Anybody get tired of the high road sometimes? He's like, mm, yeah, I did that last time and we're back here again. I don't care, I'm going low. Because I'm tired. I get to the end of Mac in a hurry. I, I know how finite I am. The amazing, unearnable, unmerited grace of God is infinite. It never runs out. Paul 
writes to the church in Corinth, and he's explaining to them how he has discovered this. And, and he's telling them, says, look, God has done so much in my life. He rescued me. I, I was persecuting the church. I was out hunting down followers of Christ, and God rescued me from that. God, in his grace, called me out of that. I've been given visions that you can't even imagine. I, I've been a part of starting churches around the world. I've done all of these things, and yet God knew that I needed to stay humble. And, and so he tells the church in Corinth that, that he was given a thorn in the side. Now, we don't know if this thorn in the side was literal or if it was a metaphor, some kind of an illustration. I think it has that much more power for us because we don't know specifically what it was. And this principle is one that we can apply to our lives that much quicker. We, we don't get hung up on like, oh, well, Paul's thorn was not as bad as mine. You don't know that. Paul's thorn may have been much heavier than anything you've ever had to bear. But look at what he says about this thorn. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. God says, my grace is all you need. Some translations say, my grace is sufficient. It's enough. In, in this context, it's like God is telling us, enough is enough. His grace is all you need. It is the power source to weather any storm. It is the power to resist any temptation. It is the power to stay faithful. It is the power to obey. The power of grace means that true faithfulness is fueled by God's grace. True faithfulness is fueled by God's grace. Remember the, the, the Christmas tree cleanup that I told you about at the very beginning, a little fireball? Well, that illustration is a great start, but it breaks down. I'm just going to confess to you as a communicator, my illustration has a weakness to it. And here it is. Because the thing that fueled that fireball burned up. It was exhausted in a matter of seconds. As soon as the fire hit those dry needles of garland, gone. There's a little scarring on the wood, but, but the fire was out. You never get to the bottom of God's grace. You never get to the end of the fuel of God's grace. It is an inexhaustible supply of fuel for faith. You never get there. The grace of God is infinite. It's infinite because the grace of God is rooted in the love of God. And we've been here throughout this series, but we got to get back here again because 
I believe with everything I have, there is no fuel more powerful for our faith than the grace and the love of God. Fear burns up. Rules and regulations and rituals by themselves on their own are not enough to fuel our faith. We have to come back to the love of God. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. This is Paul. Paul who says the entire book, the entire chapter 7 of Romans is Paul talking about how he struggles with sin, how he wrestles with. He says, the thing that I know I should do, I don't do. The thing that I want to not do, that's the thing that I do. And he says, I do this over and over and over again. But look at what he says at the end of Romans chapter 8. He says, I am convinced that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. You never get to the bottom. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a second. And it's an important, potentially life-altering second. Grace, by its very definition, is relational. Relational. Grace transcends religion, rules, regulations, rituals. Grace is relational. And you never get to the bottom of God's love. You never burn all of it up. The tank is always full. The fuel is always sufficient. If you're here today, or maybe you're watching online and you have never stepped into that relationship, you've never chosen to accept the amazing grace of God, then as a church, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been or what you've done, we invite you to choose to believe that his grace is sufficient. It is sufficient to forgive you of your sin, and it is sufficient to empower your life If you'd like to step into that for the first time, then just pray. 
pray silently right where you are. Just talk to God and say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need your grace. I don't deserve, I'm not entitled to. But in this moment, I choose to receive your amazing grace, and I will follow you. I will trust you more than I trust myself. I confess my sin to you, holding nothing back in order to receive this amazing gift of your grace. Jesus, thank you. And I will follow you from this moment forward. And I pray this prayer in your name. And for just a moment, if you would remain with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. For just a moment, I want you to know that as a church, we have the privilege we have the privilege and the responsibility to help with what's next. If you have stepped into that relationship with Christ, then we want to help with what comes next and, and how to begin walking in that relationship as a part of the family of faith. And so the first thing that I, I would just say to you is this. If you would, as our heads are bowed, would you just raise your hand? If that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand and hold it up there for a second? As you hold your hand in the air, I want you to know that's just a physical statement of the spiritual commitment. And as a church, as a family with you, we honor that and celebrate it. You can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. <laughs> welcome home. <laughs> 